0: Shalom. This is Gary Dershynski, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially. Because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B E T H. A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Moment. And it's a significant passage because it becomes the paradigm, it becomes the basis, uh, the central experience in Israel's history that speaks about the nature of salvation. This becomes the foundation piece to help us understand what salvation is all about. That's why the prophets will say the day is coming when they will no longer say the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt and the house of bondage, but the Lord who drew us out from the north, south, and east, and west, and all the nations to which he has scattered us. The point is about regathering, but it's about ultimate salvation, because at the point at which God will regather his people from the four corners of the earth is the time in which Israel will experience the gift of salvation nationally. As, you sh- as Paul wrote in Romans 11, they shall when he says, all Israel shall be saved, when the deliverer shall come from Zion and turn away all ungodliness from his people. So that time when Messiah comes, he'll regather all of his people. And when he regathers all of his people, not only does he gather them together, but he infuses them with the Spirit of God that they might experience the fullness of life. And thereby they become not only a national entity, but a spiritual body of people, a spiritual nation. And they shall all know me, Jeremiah says, from the least of them to the greatest. It is this chapter that speaks to us about the nature of salvation, what it means and what it is. It's a lengthy chapter. I want to take some time to read the portion because it is rather significant, and I want you to hear what transpires. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi Haaroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Siphon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi Ha'iroth, opposite Baal-Siphon. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still." Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of the chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. This is an incredible passage, isn't it? And a number of things struck me. We've been thinking about Moses as the greatest leader of Israel. He faced his failures and learned that without me, you can do nothing. Without God, he could do nothing. He encountered God personally, and he learned with God he can do anything God would call him to. He observed God's judgments in the ten plagues, and he learned that in the midst of God's divine justice, there is also mercy and compassion. He observed the Passover and had the blood on the two-side doorposts and upper lintel. And he learned more about how atonement for sin is provided. And now as he gets to the crossing of the Red Sea, he learns about God's power and he learns about God's great gift. Of salvation, There's some interesting passages here. I just want to show you. Look at verse 4. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 18. He says again, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. All throughout these episodes, there's been this desire, this sense in which God was saying, they shall know me and they shall experience my glory. Look at verse 19. This is an interesting passage. The angel of the Lord, referred to as the angel of God, had been traveling with Israel. He had been leading Israel out. He stood in front of Israel's arm, uh, He He was traveling in front of Israel's army. He withdrew and he went behind them. Notice the connection between the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, Messiah himself. This is, in my opinion, a pre-incarnate appearance of him and his connection with the Shekinah glory. Look what it says. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. And the cloud is made reference to, look at verse 24. It says, during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud. So you have the angel of God, you have him connected with the pillar of fire, you have the pillar of fire again in verse 24, there the angel of the Lord is referred to as God, the Lord, looking down. And notice the uniqueness of the Shekinah glory, it actually can uh, shine out brilliance and light. And so it enables light to be on the side of the Israelites, but then it somehow casts darkness, not just a shadow from the sun, but it's casting a darkness on the Egyptians so that they are forced to stand still and not to pursue the Egyptians because the darkness was too thick, perhaps, to get through, or it was so dense and dark they can't see where they're going. Interesting to see the marvelous work of God in all of this, and I love the last phrase after seeing the power of God, they fear Him, finally, they are uh, respecting him, they are honoring him they 're bowing before him, and they 're terrified as well, in a holy terror, and yet at the same time, they find themselves trusting in that which they fear isn 't that kind of a weird thing that we oftentimes have to deal with? We trust the one we know so little about and yet at the same time know what we do know about him, yet we trust him, and yet there's a fear of him. And I also love this. They express their trust in Moses. Now it'll be short lived, but it's very nice to know there was at least a moment where they trusted Moses. Because over the course of the next forty years, of course they're gonna be experiencing a great he's gonna be experiencing a great deal of complaint. But what is salvation all about? That's what this imagery is. He's saving them. And this is a defining moment in Israel's history. What does it mean to be saved? And it certainly means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. It means to be taken out from under the tyranny of one taskmaster and brought out. Of course, this raises the question, what does it mean to be free And what is it that the Israelites were saved from? I mean, when you think about it, they're saved from the Egyptians. They're saved from these taskmasters that had ruined their lives. But in another sense, they're being saved from not the Egyptian taskmasters, but their own taskmasters. I mean, look at the opening verses here. I hadn't really focused a great deal of attention on this before, but the Israelites are no longer under the tyranny of the Egyptians right? They've already left Egypt. They're now encamped outside Egypt, maybe within Egypt's confines and borders, but they're outside the immediate vicinity of the Egyptians where they were building Pharaoh's treasure cities and storehouses and being enslaved. They're en route out from the land. Now, they could have gone north, Followed the Via Maris along the Mediterranean Sea and had bypassed the entirety, uh, for the most part, the entirety of the desert to which they were going to go. But God tells them not to go that way. He tells them that they are to head south, not east. And the reason he wants them to go south is because he wants Pharaoh to think that the Israelites don't know where they're going because by going south, they're going to be bordered by the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptian desert on the other, and the army pursuing them. He wants, that is God, wants the Egyptians to think that they are hemmed in and have nowhere to go to escape. And this stirs up Pharaoh and the officials to say, let's go get them because they're stuck. And they do, they pursue them. But they're no longer under the tyranny of Egypt. They're no longer under the yoke of the Egyptians. But they've not yet entered Mount Sinai, and they haven't entered the covenant relationship with God as a nation. They've entered into the covenant by way of Abraham, but not the covenant by way of Moses that's yet. So they're sort of in a no-man's land between the yoke of God and the yoke of the Egyptians. Some might think that is freedom, so that they're no longer under any yokes of any kind. They're completely free and an entity unto themselves. Modern humanity, modern uh, society thinks this way. We usually define freedom as having total autonomy, that we can do whatever we want. It was Hendrix in uh, one of his albums, he said, when it's time for me to die, I'm the one that's to die, so let me live my life the way I want to. And so there's this sense of real freedom is found in doing whatever you want, without any controls or any accountability. And the Israelites had that for this moment. They were between Egypt and between the covenant. And yet the Israelites were still slaves. They may have thought they were free, but they were still slaves. Because look at what it says in verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and they saw the Egyptians marching, and they were terrified. So they were slaves of their own fears. They were slaves of those things which they had no control over. The Egyptians are coming, and they weren't completely free for they were slaves of fear. But it's not only fear. Look what else they say. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? They're slaves of cynicism. They're slaves to complaining. They're slaves to imagining things that are not even true. Look what they also say. They said, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? When did they say that? You know, they never said, leave us alone. We want to serve the Egyptians. In fact, if you look back in chapter five, I think it's verse 29 or so, they acknowledged the misery and their desire to be set free and how happy they were that Moses came to deliver them. Now things have turned around and look what they're saying. Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. They even say this. They're slaves of their delusion. They say, it would have even been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Really? And what's really kind of neat, when you think of what they're saying, he says, what, is, what they were saying, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die? I mean, Egypt is full of tombs, right? What sarcasm? That there weren't enough tombs in Egypt? You know, they're just all over the place that we are presently discovering. But the point is, and this is what salvation is really about, is that there is no such thing as not being a slave to something. There's no such thing as not being a slave to something. We're either slaves to... Outside taskmasters, like in the case of the Egyptians. We're either slaves to our own fears and inadequacies. Sometimes we're slaves to good things. We ought not to think that that it's only bad things that can enslave us. You know, we can sometimes elevate good things to a point in which they become our masters. I remember when I was in school, you know, I wanted to get certain letters, certain, you know, grades, and I became a slave to my studies so that if there were any interruption, you know, I was like beside myself because I am getting an A on this test. Nothing's coming the way of it. Well, what was I saying? I was a slave to having to achieve a certain level of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of attainment. It would take An um, incredible—I don't know what you would call it—but it would take an, an incredible pain that I had encountered to break that that taskmaster over my life. I remember we were in Dallas, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was sweating and I was crying. And Mary Lou said to me, "What's going on? What's wrong? You know what's happening?" I said, "I just had a nightmare." I said, what was the nightmare? I said, I was in my Greek class, and I had this test, and I had answered all these questions, and I couldn't parse this one verb. And I woke up in a sweat with tears. You know, Mary Lou said to me, you better get some sleep. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Something wrong, you know. I don't know if she said it like that, but if she did, I would, it would have been the right thing to say. From that moment on, I said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to sleep at like 10, 11 o'clock. It'll be the exception, not the rule. And whatever grade I get, that's what I get. And you know, my grades were better (laughs) when I stopped making them my taskmasters. Nothing wrong with getting good grades. But when they're transformed into taskmasters, they enslave us. They don't just enslave us, they hurt us. Just like that, I couldn't sleep you know, they don't treat us well. They are overbearing and they destroy us. But those are the only options. Our only option is to be a slave to something. They may be good things, but they will turn on you. They may be bad things, they've already turned on you. The only slavery that will bring us any kind of relief is slavery to God. There's no place of middle ground, of independence. In fact, One of our great prophets and thinkers, back in 1977, 40 years ago, 1977, his Grammy Award-winning album, Slow Train Coming, had one of my favorite songs, You Gotta Serve Somebody, right? I got to have my guitar so I could do this, but listen to these lyrics. You may be an ambassador to England or France, right? You have a high position. You may be a person of, of recognition, He said, you may like to gamble, somebody that's pretty low on the totem pole. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're a slave to something and to somebody He says, you may be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have money and drugs at your commands, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a state trooper. You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich, or you may be poor, you may be blind, or you may be lame, you may be living in another country, even under another name, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a construction worker working on a home, you may be living in a mansion, you may live in a dome. you might have guns, you might own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord, you might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. I love this line. You may be a preacher. With your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. Maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, in uh, his style, we could go on reading more and more of, of this. But you get the point. Everybody is a slave to something. Salvation is. Being brought to a place where God is your slave, uh, is your master, and you have no other slaves, masters. (laughs) Um, Or I should say, it's the point at which you are brought to where you have no other masters, but only God as your master. That's what salvation is. It is coming to him and being connected to him. And coming to him is a wonderful thing because he's a good taskmaster. You know, he's one who joins us to himself by his, by his grace. Like here, it says that the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. You know, if we follow him, he is with us. And that's what Yeshua said. I will never leave you nor forsake us, forsake you. If we follow him, he is with us. If we obey him, he will bless us. And if we disobey him, if we fail him in some way, he will forgive us. He is not like other taskmasters, that when we don't live up to its standards, they berate us, and they chide us, and they attack us, and they demean us. With him, he forgives us. And he he loves us. The question is, what is in control of our life? What is it that controls us? And if God is the one that we seek to be controlled by, well then, we will have begun to experience salvation. Now, let me draw your attention to this other portion of this passage. Notice how they were saved. They were not saved by something they did for themselves. This is where our faith, the biblical faith, is so radically different from all other faiths. All other faiths tell us that the way to achieve whatever it is they tell us is the way of salvation requires us to do something And in doing that something, we never arrive. We're only in process in the hope of one day arriving. Consider, for example, Hinduism. Hinduism teaches the way to arrive is by going through a series of reincarnations to higher and higher levels. There's never the promise you've arrived. There's only the challenge to do better so you become incarnate in something higher so that you can eventually, hopefully, sometime in the distant future, arrive at that place. There's no sense in which you've arrived. There's no sense in which you have come to a place of salvation, only a process that hopefully will result in it. Take Buddhism. Buddhism focuses on meditation, on reflection. And if you learn how to do it well, maybe at some point in your life, you'll experience some enlightenment, some nirvana. There's no promise that if you come to Buddha today, you will have nirvana. You're only told that this is the way to it and hopefully you can incorporate it into your life faithfully enough that at that time, sometime, you will enter in to nirvana. You're in a process without without any kind of certainty that you arrive at the place you're hoping to get to. Look at Islam. Islam has a whole host of laws and expectations one is to have. You never know if you'll actually make it to paradise unless you have faithfully incorporated all of the disciplines that Islam speaks of. There's never a sense of certainty or of hope. The only faith in all of humanity that says the opposite is what the Bible teaches, that we can know without a shadow of doubt that we have eternal life. And it has nothing to do with what you have done. It has everything to do with what God does for us. That is so graphically pictured here in the Exodus. Look, when all the other Israelites are fearful, they're afraid, and they're complaining, and they're sarcastic, and they're saying, what have you done to us? I'm so impressed with Moses, aren't you? Moses is calm. He answers and said, don't be afraid. He could have gotten into an argument with them. So what are you talking about? I never said any of those things. Where did you come up with this? But no, he just says, look, stand still and watch what God is going to do. Now, two things I want to say. One of the reasons why Moses could do that is because he already was a slave of God. And God had already assured him of him bringing the people out of Egypt. He told him that when he saw encountered him at the burning bush. It took a little while, but Moses now is at that point where he is a slave of God and he trusts him. So he says, look, I want you to simply not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. And get this, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Get this, you need only to be still. <laughs> Is that not a wonderful thing? You know? you know, to do it, just be still. Let me save you. Can you just let me do this? You know, <laughs> And just be still. God does this for us. I don't know to what degree you want to push that, but I like the sense, you know what? We don't have to have our hands on the wheel all the time. We don't have to fight for our cause all the time. We can just say, Lord, I'm being still, and your will be done. Now, the Israelites had to move, but how did they have to move? You know, people say, how much faith does a person need in order to experience the salvation of God? Yeshua says, if you have faith like a mustard seed. The disciples say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Isn't that incredible? I want to believe, but I can't believe. Help my unbelief. Enable me to believe. Help me believe. And it made me think that when the Israelites walk across on dry ground, how did they walk across? Some probably came to that and saw the waves parted, right? It says the east wind blowing from the Sinai toward Egypt went right through the Red Sea and caused the waves to come up. That's how powerful the wind is going. That's how significant God's hands are, you might say, as he's holding it all up, right? So now how would some go through? There's some with incredible faith that are saying, hey, let's go, you know, and they're sort of hopping, skipping, jumping, wow, well, look at this, put their hand by the water, and, you know, and they're then there are probably others saying, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, the things are going to kill, I mean, who? you know? Some of them were afraid. Some of them were probably, wow, this is awesome, But it didn't matter. All made it through. Whether they were the ones that were concerned, this thing could fall on us at any moment, or those that went through and said, I can't wait to go through, and they get to the other side, hey, let's go back again, forth, you know, just to see what that's like. There are some people who can do that. There are other people who are always, like, kind of nervous about things. But God said, just be still, I am saving you. And when he saves, you're saved. <laughs> you know? I mean, th- this is so much. Here they are crossing, right? But just check this verse out. You can turn. You don't have to. But it's John chapter 5, verse 24. In all the texts that I was reading, they all come to this passage. So why, why shouldn't we? When Yeshua speaks to the disciples, he says in chapter 5, verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Buddha would never say that. The Hindu people will never say that. Muhammad would never say that. Yeshua says, if you believe my word, whoever hears it and believes it has eternal eternal life. Already has eternal life. Doesn't have to work for it, earn it, and, and somehow develop it. And hopefully one day you'll be there. Just do your best and leave it up to God. No, you have eternal life. You will not be condemned. But get this, he has crossed over from death to life. I mean, isn't that what the Israelites just did? They crossed over From slaves to Egypt and hopefully themselves to being slaves of God. We've crossed over from death, slavery to anything else. And life which only comes from God. Think about Paul. That phrase, Romans 8.1. Now keep in mind, Paul was a murderer. Paul said he was the chiefest of all sinners. Paul said he was the greatest of all sinners. And yet, what does he say in Romans 8.1? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Do you know Yeshua? There's no condemnation for you. You know all the things you've done that you said, Man, I was a slave to this, 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 and we still battle things. It doesn't matter. There is now no condemnation. Previous chapter, we looked at the Passover. The blood of the lamb provided atonement from sin. In this chapter, we move from the blood of atonement to the power of God to transform. And what happens? The Israelites now trust God. They trust Moses. They believe in him. They've experienced a transformative work of God. The transformation takes place by God's power. The redemption takes place by by the blood of the lamb, (laughs) you know. And atonement is provided, is provided for us. And we need only be still. Now, I know that in our lives, we think sometimes that God has brought distresses into our lives, challenges, difficulties, things that we might fear because he's doing something to us. <laughs> you know? And usually we don't think he's doing anything good to us. But I was reading a number of passages. You know, you're not alone if you think that. There are passages in the scriptures. For example, right here, we just read that the Israelites, when they saw the Egyptians pursuing them, they thought God had brought them into the desert to kill them. But God brought them into the desert to bring them through the Red Sea. I mean, everything is so backwards, you know. That's not the only place. If you wanted to turn with me, you can. But in 1 Samuel chapter 27, David thought the same thing. When he was being pursued by Saul, it says in 1 Samuel 27, But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Look what David thought, that I'm going to be killed by Saul. But what was the reality? Saul would die on Mount Gilboa fighting the Philistines, and David would one day sit on the throne. I mean, he thought the worst of his circumstances when God had the best of intentions. Think about Elijah. Elijah, when he faced Jezebel, he ran from her, right, after he has the rain come and all, and he runs from her, and he sits under the juniper tree, and he says, Lord, take my life. I am the only one left of all the prophets. Take my life, because Jezebel will kill me. But what happens? Jezebel is thrown from the parapet over the wall, and the dogs eat her body. But what happens to Elijah? He never dies. He's taken up in a fiery chariot into the very presence of God. He thought that moment was the end of his life when it had nothing to do with the end of his life. (laughs) That's what I think salvation is. Salvation is being saved from all other taskmasters and recognizing we have one master who is not a taskmaster to whom we are to be his slave. And that's what Paul says, slave of Yeshua, right? I, Paul, an apostle, slave. That's what he calls himself over and over. That's how we ought to see ourselves. In closing, let me draw your attention to the book of Colossians. Since we are God's slaves, if you know him as Messiah, when you are in those places like David was, like Elijah was, like the Israelites were, we need to see things as they really are. God's got things fully in control. We can trust him, and he will bring us through. Rather than to become like the Israelites... To imagine the worst kind of scenario and the worst kind of possibility, say in the case of, of uh, David thinking he would be slain or Elijah being slain or the Israelites being decimated. We need to put our eyes on him and realize he has good things in store for us. Why? Because it says in Colossians, Since then, you have been raised with Messiah. Set your hearts on things above, where Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me just say two things. Number one, notice it says in verse 3 that our life is hidden in Messiah. The word here, hidden, is used two different ways. It means is secured, is protected, and secondly, it is treasured. Yeshua uses this word when he speaks about treasures that are to be hidden because they're valuable and loved. When he says our life is hidden in Messiah, he means to say you're protected by him. And not only are you protected by him, but you are valuable to him. And therefore, he will only intend good things and do good things for you. And lastly, he says, Messiah is your life. So draw upon him when these moments come. Remember the truth of Yeshua is with you and behind you and alongside of you and his care and compassion for you. Remember that there is now no condemnation for God has not led us into our wildernesses for condemnation, but rather to see his power exhibited in some great way. We may not know that way, but it will appear at some point because there is already no condemnation and therefore there is no reason for judgment. There's only reason for celebration and hope and joy in our Lord. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers